Hello everybody, welcome back to our final episode of the uh, med series. Uh, this is Let's Talk Science, the Classified STEM Survival Guide podcast. Uh, my name is Ramir. And my name is Audrey. And once again, the goal of this podcast is to talk about the possible career paths one can take in the field of STEM and the challenges one may face in navigating the STEM world. Welcome to the sixth episode, as I said earlier, um, of a podcast series, The Med Survival Guide. In this episode, we will be talking about what it's like to be a physician with Dr. Cheryl Rockman Greenberg. So Dr. Cheryl Rockman Greenberg is a clinical and metabolic geneticist and distinguished professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Child Health and Department of Biochemistry and Medical Genetics at the University of Manitoba. So in 2012, she was in the top 100 of Canada's most powerful women by the Women's Executive Network. And in 2018, she was inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame for her research on treatment of hypophosphatasia. She also contributed to the development of uh, targeted newborn screening programs for people in Manitoba at risk for rare conditions such as CPT1 deficiency that is overrepresented in Hutterite communities, and as well as gluteric aciduria type 1 newborn screening for the OG creeps. All right. Hello, Dr. Cheryl Rockman Greenberg. How are you today? <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> Thank we're you very much for inviting me. To do yeah, this. we're so happy to have you on our podcast. <laughs> so, um, as mentioned, uh, you are a physician, um, more specifically a clinical and metabolic geneticist. So, what or who inspired you to pursue a career in medicine? Okay. Well, I, I think I really, first of all, I want to thank you very much for inviting me to do this. Yeah, um, for sure. You know, it, it's not easy to talk about oneself. And, you know, when you ask me to do this, it always causes me to think back and reflect about how did I get to where I am today? So these are important parts of of career development in itself is to stop and look back and think about how you actually get to where you want to go. And um, more importantly, you know, ask myself again in thinking about this podcast, you know, am I today the kind of person that I thought I would be and that I wanted to be? The answer to that really is yes. But, you know, it, did, it didn't happen overnight, and there are obviously many people who inspired and helped me along the way. Um, the, the first thought about pursuing a career in medicine did not happen until I was, oh, 19 years old, and I was working in a lab at McGill University because I grew up in Montreal, and I knew I always liked science. But, you know, it never dawned on me that um, I could have a career in medicine. Uh, just to step back a bit, you know, I turned 70 years old today. Not today, this year. This year. Oh, happy so related born, birthday. Actually, I turned 70 in September of okay. 2020. So I was born in 1950. That's a long time ago. Now, I don't feel 70, although I'm very happy I have made it to 70 and um, not without its challenges, but we all have challenges. Um, but, you know, I grew up in the 50s and 60s. Um, in the first 
you know, to a decade and a half, this was before even the era of Medicare, of socialized medicine in Canada. You know, life was so different then. And, um, you know, I was from a um, post-war, you know, second generation Canadian family, um, hardworking family, very strong extended family, but nobody in my family had ever gone to university before. And um, on the other hand, I had tremendous role models as parents and grandparents that education was very important. So it didn't matter what else I did, you know, education was really important. Um, but, and I was, I went to high school in Montreal. I knew early on in high school that I liked science. I, I really liked science. In those days I did biology, I did chemistry. I liked science. And um, I also like sports, you know, I, I like to be active in sports, but I didn't think I was going to pursue a career in, um, in sports. That was not my calling, but I like science. And um, believe it or not, when I started my undergraduate degree, because I was encouraged by my family to apply to university, um, an undergraduate first year at McGill University, where I started in 1967, um, the tuition was like $600 a year, you know? And oh. we were not a very well-off family, but it was very reasonable to go to university, especially if you had a summer job. But because I liked science, I, my friend and I, who, was, who shared my interest, decided we were going to apply to physiotherapy and to the School of Physiotherapy, now called Physical Medicine or Med and Medical Rehabilitation. And I started at McGill as an undergraduate in the School of Med Rehab at McGill in 1967. By January of 1968, I knew that I wasn't happy. I knew I didn't like, I couldn't see myself becoming a physiotherapist. I'm not sure when I think back, what was it I didn't like about it, but it, it wasn't my calling. And it, it was a, a real crisis for me because I didn't know what to do. But in the end of the day, I decided to go back into just undergraduate science at McGill University. And, you know, it was a very traumatic experience because I always had a career plan that I was going to do something in science. And suddenly I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And uh, it was unsettling, but I applied and, and I registered in an introduction to human genetics course. And it was the very first course that I did. And it was taught by Dr. Charles Scriver and Dr. Clark Fraser, who ultimately became my mentors. Um, to this day, you know, um, I revere them really. And after my first class, I said, I want to do that, you know, and I was just, I was at that stage in 1967, that was 1968, I was just, just turned 18 years old, and I asked Dr. Scriver for a summer job, and um, he gave me a summer job, and um, I worked for over two summers for Dr. Scriver in the biochemical genetics lab, and was right adjacent to Dr. Fraser's Department of Medical Genetics. So I, I had exposure to all aspects of medical genetics, which was just a developing specialty at that time, and biochemical genetics. 
with hereditary metabolic diseases. And one day, Dr. Uh, Fraser um, brought me into his office and said, Cheryl, have you ever thought about applying to medicine? I said, no, it, it never dawned on me. He said, I think you should consider it. So he, you know, in his, you know, a very supportive way, and I have never even thought about it, had me speak to some of the counselors involved in the admissions to medical school. I read about it. And that was the first time I really realized if someone whom you respect makes a suggestion, then you have to really listen and take it seriously. He obviously saw something in me that I didn't even know that I even had even the capability of becoming a doctor. But he planted the seed. I spoke with lots of people. I applied and I got in. I was accepted. I was overwhelmed. And it was also, I was a bit conflicted because I love genetics. I wanted to do research, um, but he certainly encouraged me, encouraged me to go. And I did. And, and really medical school at, at McGill was, the best years of my life, but I owe it all to Dr. Scriver and to Dr. Fraser. Wow. Wow. That's a, that was a long, long answer to your first question. <laughs> Sorry. No worries. <laughs> wow. That's no, a absolutely. great story. Yeah. That, it's really nice to have, you know, mentors like that. Yeah. And that it's really good that, like you said, they saw something in you that, and then they, they suggested for you to go there. And now you are here or today. And that's really the story of, of my career. People have all, in every phase of my career, saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. It, it's not that I you know, didn't see potential in me and, and I didn't have career goals and career plans, um, but I didn't aspire to you know, professional advancement and career development. I just wanted to do a good job in whatever I was doing at the time and do the best I could. But, you know, the mentors are absolutely critical. If somebody, you know, to, to help guide you. And again, I want to stress, if people see something in you that you don't see in yourself, you still have to take it very seriously and listen carefully and go with it. That whether advice. it be positive or negative, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's very true. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, not everything is positive, you know, you, mm -hmm. you have to, but when you have a good relationship with a mentor and they're honest with you, they're not there to sugarcoat everything. You know, they're there to provide you with, you know, very down to earth advice, but also advice that is, you know, appropriate to where you are at in, in your stage of life. Absolutely. And um, okay. I'd just like to ask you, I, like you said, this was in, in the 50s, 60s. And around that time, things were very different compared to now. Um, tell us a little a little bit about, you know, as you mentioned, there were there 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 were cha challenges, of course, um, that were were present during that time, and you still were able to you know do the things that you did during that time. Uh, how did you uh, how did you encounter and overcome the certain challenges that life during that time have brought you? Well. I guess it's 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 now time for me to make one true confession. Okay, um, I was absolutely motivated by the lessons my my parents have taught me. 
But at the same time, you have to understand that my life changed when I turned 14 because in one week I learned that my mom was actually going to die. Okay. And honestly, I've not really talked about this at all. It's something that I've carried with me my whole life. But my dad told my sat my brothers and I down one day, and I knew my mom had been sick for about eight years. But I never knew what was wrong with her, but he told me that she had very extensive bowel cancer and she wasn't expected to live for another week. And I was, I was absolutely floored. I, mean, I had no idea. First of all, I had no idea what cancer was. I had no idea that a mother could die. And I had no idea why my father chose to withhold this information from us. You know, what was he trying to protect? Because I don't know if I would have been a, a, a nicer preteen if I, you know, if I would have slammed fewer doors or if I would have fought less with my brothers. But that was a pivotal moment in my life. Losing your mom when I just turned 14 was a terrible experience. But I tried, I tried to turn every negative experience into something positive because what I couldn't give her and with the mentors that I had through Dr. Scribe and Dr. Fraser and having forging a career in medicine, I was determined to try to give back and help people in a way that A, I couldn't help my mother, but also in a field that I knew that I was interested in, in, any, in, in medicine. Um, but that was a real pivotal moment. And, um, you know, it's not something that, that I for, forget anymore. So, um, I actually forget what you asked me. <laughs> it's just, yeah. How did, how did you overcome and uh, overcome. what type of challenges? So yeah, I so. took the challenge of thinking and missing my mother every day. And also keep in mind, I lost my dad when I was 19. So my brothers and I, raised ourselves. And I was really the, the, you know, I, again, we didn't have much in terms of money and my father worked very hard, but losing both parents, you know, at a time when it could have turned into something catastrophic. All of you, anybody who's listening to this podcast, many people have lost parents, lost loved ones. And, and how do you get the strength to keep going and turn a negative experience into a positive experience. But I was determined. I don't know where I got the strength to do that. All I knew that I had to honor the, my parents and I knew that they would want me to do the best I could. And, and with the mentors that I had encouraging me all along the way and a little bit of luck and, you know, then it, it worked out, not without a great deal of effort and work. I mean, obviously, I've worked very hard, um, but I, I was very focused on what I knew, what was important to me and, and how I had to live, you know, my professional life. Absolutely. That's thank you so much for sharing all yeah, of that. Thank you and, so much uh, for sharing that. And I'm sure that, of course, both of your parents are very proud of you and that, you know, and I could not imagine what that must well, have been like. Yeah. It's, it's not the easiest. Um, I've always said they're watching me from the red rock, wherever that is, you know, but <laughs> it is what it is. You know, the many people 
suffer, and particularly in times of COVID, how difficult this time it, it is. You know, many people have suffered tremendous loss and tremendous mm-hmm. tragedy. And how do you turn a negative experience into a something positive that will allow you to carry on in life? It's not easy, but you know, you, nobody can do it alone. That's another important message. You have to surround yourself with people, you know, who will help guide your way. Absolutely, agreed. Yeah. And uh, to to anyone who's going through the same, you know, struggles or encountering, you know, any type of problems right now, yeah. just you 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 can get through it, right? So, like Dr. Yeah. Greenberg has gone through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, moving on now from um, your, you know, you've decided you you applied to medical school. Um, which is McGill, right? That's where you went? Went to medical school at McGill, yeah. So uh, what is something that medical school has taught you about yourself, your community, uh, the world uh, around you, and or, or the, uh, the inner or life that you didn't expect to learn? Well, uh, you know, uh, medical school was one of the best experiences of my life. Um, but what it did teach me was, if anything, humility. How humbling it is to have the opportunity to learn to be a doctor is something that I never took for granted. I, I felt it was always felt it was a real privilege. And um, so humility and you knowing that you can learn from your patients, like most of the things you learn in medicine, I can tell you 70% is what you learn from listening to your patients. Okay, 20, maybe 70 percent, 25 percent is probably from the Internet, (laughs) you know, and reading and thinking, you know, and um, only 5 percent is probably what you learn from books. But medical school, you know, taught me humility, taught me to listen to people and to make sure you put patients first. Uh, and foremost, you know, in your in your decision making. So, um, and regardless of what I did in medical school, you know, whatever rotation I was doing, um, the focus from my teachers and from everybody within the healthcare profession was that you, we we learned about respect for the patient, and that was a lesson that I, I tried to. Well, certainly it resonated with me completely. And it's something that, you know, was very, has, has stayed with me for, for my whole life, really. Well, um, you talking about uh, like uh, humility and things that you've learned through medical school. Um, and you said you mentioned rotations. Did you have an experience uh, during your rotations um, where you had an interaction with a patient that sort of changed your view in your career? Um, well, um, I, I thought you were maybe going to ask me also, did I have any negative experiences? You oh, know? yeah, perhaps that as well. <laughs> um, my experience with my patients have always been, you know, uh, very important for me and, and have formed many aspects of my career. Um, 
you know, growing up and as a resident and specializing in metabolic and genetic diseases and training in Montreal at Montreal Children's Hospital and at St. Justin in Montreal, you saw, you know, lots of things that you do not see today, you know, and, you know, I realized, you know, the, what medical advances has done, you know, to shape our healthcare system. Like nobody today would see, will see measles, well, not will see, will see diphtheria. Well, I saw diphtheria. I saw polio. And I don't want to say this to age myself in any way, but, you know, that was, you know, I saw more, that's what happened. I saw more meningitis, you know, than, than I would ever want to see. Um, but it was a very busy time. You worked very, very hard in a residency and um, you make mistakes. And there was one mistake that I did make um, that to this day I remember and I regret because I believe it probably cost that patient his life, you know. And um, but I, what I do remember is being incredibly tired, you know, and obviously I was a little bit burnt out the day that patient came in. And what I learned from that is, you know, is as hard as I knew I had to work and we were worked hard, I had to be sure not to be afraid to ask for help when you're too tired, you know, and say, listen, can you cover for me? I just got to go have, lie down for an hour. I have to sleep. And again, everything you do, whether it's in medicine or outside of medicine, you can't do it alone. You have to you know, network with people and work together with people. So that was a negative experience, you know, um, because I don't know if I was too proud to ask for help or it just wasn't done in those days. You just worked, you know, you just had to work very, very hard. Um, but I, I learned both for myself and when I was, and over the years, as I've been in positions of leadership to make sure the people who reported to me understood that they could come to me with anything, ask for help for anything. I would never pass judgment and I would do my best to help. So, you know, again, I think you're getting the, the message that I've always tried to turn negative things into positive things, you know, and that's to me the only way I can survive, really. Um, I've had wonderful experiences in helping patients and, you know, um, I, one of the things that I, I always said is that the, the reason I've enjoyed my work so much as a doctor and as a researcher is um, I can enjoy it the most when I feel that I'm actually helping people. And that's to me what medicine is all about. Now, don't get me wrong, medicine and being a doctor is absolutely critical. But for those of you who are considering careers in medicine, medicine as a career involves so many different aspects. There's, you know, there's much more to medicine than just being a doctor. You need to have the infrastructure, people who are doing research, lab technologists, you know, um, mathematicians, people who understand artificial intelligence, people who understand and can teach me how the internet works, you know. Um, you know, you enjoy your work um, if you can help others, but I've needed to have a large group of people around me. 
and who have helped me every step of the way. And, you know, Dr. Postal, who's the current uh, Dean of the Faculty of, of Health Sciences, always said that the whole should be greater than the sum of its parts. And that's true. You get the most out of your profession, out of your career, if you can work collaboratively with people around you and not to be afraid to ask for help. Um, I've had many highs in my curiosity, any wonderful memories, you know, many highs when you, you, you've been able to participate in the development of a treatment for a disease that had 100% mortality and you turn a, an untreatable disease into a treatable disease. You know, I've only worked in my life in rare diseases. And um, so, <clears throat> so, you know, you don't get the opportunity to really affect change when you're dealing with an ultra rare disease that's not treatable. But it's happened to me and it's been incredibly satisfying and incredibly motivating, you know, to turn an untreatable disease into a treatable one. And so, that's always been a motivating factor to, to try to help. And if you happen to find something that's actually going to be able to change the natural history of a severe disease, well, that's a real bonus. It's a good feeling. It's a very good feeling. But um, absolutely agree that, yeah. you know, you'll be, it'll be easier, you know, most likely with other people, right, in a group. So yeah, you have to have it, yeah, no matter where you are, in your education, in your training, in your work, nobody can do it alone. You always need a team of people around you. Listen, as you're studying in your own careers now as, as students, I'm sure you have study groups, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> we have group chats now, you know, no, have, <laughs> on yeah. the internet yeah, where uh, we just send it's it's really yeah. quick too we just send our practice exams and then we ask questions there so. and we help each other out especially during this time online school so, yeah. so. i honestly yeah. honestly feel for you as students and all the students during covid 19 I, I i can't i mean i find it hard enough myself you know to be so isolated and you know not being right in the thick of things with people all around me. But I, I know that for you guys in developing your education careers, I, I really feel for you. All I can say is, you know, if you've done this and made it so far, then it's only going to get better. Yes. yes. Thank you. And we're, we're pretty close. We're getting vaccinated here in our uh, province. So yeah. <laughs> you know. the student, students at university, are eligible for the, your vaccinations now, even at a young age now? Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yeah. So uh, I just like to get back to, um, you know, you talking about uh, that time, that experience, and you mentioned that it was because you were, you know, you were overworked and you stressed out and you were, you know, you didn't ask for help, you know, and, and it's kind of like I can relate to that with because I work at a, at a restaurant also as a, as a server. So, you know, that's to be honest, I, I kind of think that me working at a restaurant, I could potentially share in, in like an MMI or something once I get there. But, you know, I, I always related to medicine because, you know, there's a lot of stresses that come to it. But of course, I have a team, you know, for other servers as well, my manager, supervisors to help me out. Um, but of course, you know, there will be times where it'll be really stressful, it'll be burnt out. Um, and not only in that aspect, but 
also as a student right now, especially during this time, I feel personally, you know, I've felt burnt out and, um, you know, stressed, you know, given that I have to adapt to the new ways of teaching because everything is, you know, converted to online now. Um, what can you say about, you know, how to deal with uh, stress or, you know, um, bur- burning out? Uh, and how, how, do you, how do you work on your mental health as well as physical health? I think they, those two uh, tie in together. Hmm. Very good question. When you when you talk about stress, there's so many different types of stress. Um, there's personal stress, the stress you're going to feel as young people forging relationships. There's lots of personal stress. There's the moral distress when you disapprove of what other people are doing, and it morally upsets you. And you may or may not be able to do anything about it. Um, there's societies, the stress of societies. You know, I, I have a, a lot of, you know, and many of young people, you know, the stress of worrying about our world and society, whether it be climate change, whether it be anti-racism, um, whether it be STEM and increasing diversity in the workplace. I mean, there's so many challenges and so many stresses at so many different levels. And of course, the stress of the COVID pandemic, you know. Um, how you deal with these challenges, um, there's not, to me, there's not one size fits all. The most important part is just to be aware that there's nothing wrong if you feel stressed at any level and challenges. And, um, you know, you just have to find the way that will work for you to a acknowledge the stress and find a way to deal with it, whether it be through, you know, physical activity and sports and running, whether it be yoga, whether it be reading, um, whether it just be walking. Um, if you recognize that stress, stress is inevitable, especially at this time, um, and you can talk about it. I, when I go online and I see all these possibilities of, of these chats and how to deal with mental stress and physical stresses, every step along your way in your careers now, there are people and facilities and organizations that can help you. I mean, most people I don't think necessarily know all the services that are out there to help people. And helping usually means just having somebody to listen to you and to talk to, to talk to, you know, there's no magic bullet to, to relieve one of the stresses that everybody is feeling now. Me, the only thing that has worked is that to surround yourselves with some people with, you know, who share your stresses and, and, and don't pass judgment and are willing to listen. But uh, everybody, everybody is feeling stressed now. And, I mean, you and uh, Ramir and Audrey sound very motivated in terms of your career plans. When I think of all the students who may be listening to this podcast, and it's so easy at this time to lose one's enthusiasm, to say, to, to drop out, not to continue. And how do you find that inner strength to keep going? But, you know, it's well worth it in the end. 
it's well worth it in the end. Um, it's not going to be easy, but there's so many ways I see in the system now that are accommodating people who are feeling such stress. You know, my fellow researchers, you know, we, we get notices that, you know, automatically the faculty is going to extend the contract of research support people, our technicians in the lab, you know, because we haven't had the time to produce the results because of pandemic and people's pressures at home. And, you know, we've had to, I've, I am very, you know, supportive and lenient to help people who work with me to make sure first and foremost that things are stable at home. And if you have to take a few days and you have to be home, that's fine. So um, it's just a question of working together to, to get through this difficult period. I agree. I think our team at, at Let's Talk Science, it's not just a one man show. We have like seven of us. And I think I'm grateful for everyone on our team because we support each other. And we, we know the stress of Let's Talk Science and preparing all those outreaches. But yeah, I can definitely agree being able to find that support system because it can be very stressful. Um, but uh, yeah. So my question to you and to Ramir, when you apply, you've told me that you are interested in applying for post-secondary, you know, medical schools and, you know, and higher education. Um, do you feel safe enough to put on your resume how difficult the last two years have been. You know, we, in my old days, we would never admit that we had weaknesses or explain that we couldn't be productive in that year, you know, because I had to stay home and take care of my brothers, you know. You know, it was not accepted. But to me, I think we've made so many advances within our university and our, for me, I deal mostly with the faculty of health sciences, but there's so many ways of, of people being kind to each other and to allow you to be kind to yourself and to be open and honest about, you know, of any stresses and sadnesses in your life that might have affected, you know, whether or not you could write two more medical papers or you know whether or not you were able to get an A plus but you had to settle for a C. You know, I I I I hope and pray that our system, you know, um, with all the efforts being done through STEM, through EDI, through all the organizations, that we can have a little bit more of a of a compassionate way of of supporting each other. And um, I, I could see, but everybody, you know, is suffering in his or her own way. You, you are absolutely right in that, that um, you know, the system has made a couple advancements that allow, you know, students to be more comfortable now to, to apply with, um, to be more confident in their resumes. Um, and I think, honestly, if anything, out of the whole team, Audrey, I'm probably like the one with the most because I'm that type of student where in high school I was, um, you know, kind of cruising through it and, oh, this is easy. And then the first year university, I just took full course load. I, I didn't listen to the advice, first of all, that was given to me to by my mentors, which were already, you know, um, who, who have gone through it. So I completely 
you know, just went my own way and I said I can do it. And then I didn't. So, you know, now it's it's like, okay, now I gotta focus. But I think that there there is now significance to that because um I, I listen to a lot of podcasts all the time and you know most of these um speakers who some of them are from the 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 team the admissions team of medical schools they say that they now look for trends um in your transcript right like if if they see an up, upward trend you know then they'll consider you still and you know i think that that there is you still have to work hard and you still have to show that you're capable um but just you know one or two years where you're not doing so well that does not completely define you as a student that's it's kind of how i approach it so. well i think i think you're absolutely right you know um i was you know i, I have a book that i keep with you know, some newspaper articles or some interviews. And I was um, looking at one that came, I don't know, a few years ago when I was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And they, um, I had a, many opportunities to speak with students from many different schools and a lot of medical students from across the country. And someone asked me, you know, to give advice for the next generation. And the one thing I really did feel, and I think it's apropos here now, is to work hard, take some chances, but don't look back, follow your dreams to the best of your ability, but have a backup plan. You know, I, you know, I, I listened to both of you and you, know, you aspired to, be, uh, to get into medicine. Um, but you have to have a backup plan because I appreciate it's it's very competitive now, and I'm not a hundred percent sure that. I mean, I've never been on the admissions committee. I've sat on many undergraduate committees, but I've never actually been on these committees. Um, I didn't even know what an MMI was until you know, until people talk to talk to me about you know, what an application to medical school is like now. You have to have, you know, to be very focused and career and and work hard, but you still have to have a backup plan. And it's not the end of the world if you don't get into medicine. As I say, there, I mean, I don't know what I, I know what I would have done if I hadn't gone, to, ultimately gone to medical school. Um, I think I would have just studied linguistics because I really like languages. And when I was young, I was very good at picking up all kinds of languages. It's a lot harder now, but I, I'm, I'm fascinated by language. So you have to have a backup plan. And I guess, you know, when I retire, or if I retire, I have no immediate plans. I think I will do something in the area of linguistics. It's really good advice. I think um, from our previous episodes, many of the medical students that we talked about, um, one of them did one year of law before going into med. Um, one person, I think Ian, he was a chef before he got into medical school. So, um, and yeah, I, I agree getting into medical school and like getting that rejection letter isn't the end of the world. There is more to life than just getting accepted into med school. There's other things that you can do and, um, and you can find a passion for in this world. So, um, yeah, I completely agree with that. 
that being said, um, previously you talked about sort of like how the healthcare system was a lot different during your time, like in the 50s and 60s, you saw diphtheria um, firsthand, um, but now you don't really see that now. Um, and I guess you've also seen how the healthcare system sort of improved in a way. It, I bet there's also things in the healthcare system that could still be improved. Um, is there something that you think that should be changed in the healthcare system? And what would that be and, and why? Huh, that's a di very difficult question. Um, you know, when Medicare was developed, uh, the big mistake that I think that happened at that time was pharmacare did not get included in the in the socialized medicine format that we have here in Canada. And um, that to me is a, a huge challenge um, because not having a national system that will help us support the cost of, of the drugs that people have to take and the more and more expensive drugs is um, really putting a lot of our patients at a disadvantage. So, you know, I would, I hope in the future we'll have a system where we will be able to not just support people from all the healthcare costs of when you go to, for, for medical stuff, but also from a pharmacare point of view, because more and more diseases are getting treated, but the cost of these treatments are astronomical. So I know, you know, there's lots of committees and, you know, we in the speeches from the, the finance minister, you know, there are plans in the future to develop a, a national pharmacare system. Um, I hope that actually comes to fruition because I think that will revolutionize um, the, our ability not just to develop new treatments, but actually get them into the hands of the people who need them. So that's uh, that. I know that's that's a very broad broad category, but I would really hope that we could do something because science in Canada, research in Canada, discovery in Canada is amazing. Um, but the translation of discovery into, you know, practical treatments that could actually be into the hands of the people is still something that needs a, a lot, a lot of work. We also have problems in Canada in the sense that um, we have, you know, 12 healthcare systems in Canada, 10 provinces, and no, 13 health systems and three territories. And um, I mean, I would like to see a much stronger federal oversight in terms of policy with some of the new things that are coming with the healthcare system. So those are very broad things that I would like to see, see for the future. But on a day-to-day -day basis that, you know, anybody in this world in F Canada should not be uh, denied admission to hospital on the basis of whether or not he or she can pay is something that we must never take for granted. Absolutely, absolutely agree. And, um, you know, but unfortunately, of course, politics is pretty complicated. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but I'm no, I'm no expert in it, but I've had, uh, it, it is taking a lot of my time now and energy, my thinking energy in terms of I work a lot, you know, from my research career 
and now more into into advocacy. You know, that's an aspect of my career as a doctor and dealing with rare diseases in, in trying to advocate for the patients, especially for those who cannot advocate for themselves. So um, unfortunately, I, I'm not a politician, but I really try to, to forge relationships to try to make an impact on, you know, in terms of advocacy. That's a huge area, huge area. Absolutely. And that that's great. And I think that, you know, more people try to do the same because it, it it's really uh, important, especially like you said, you know, the the federal oversight. Oh, there should be oversight for everybody, right? So I'll, I'll give an example just for for insight for our uh, audience. Um, I have family in the in the Philippines, right? And um, their politics there is pretty. Let's not get into that, but um, yeah, it's very complicated. <laughs> yeah. So they they do have Pfizer. Right, which is of course the more you know popular and the you know more uh, talked about and more findings I guess I'm not entirely sure about the other there's some other um, brand uh, or well, of vaccines that um Philippines but- in Canada now um, Pfizer Moderna mm-hmm. yeah AstraZeneca with all its controversy but um johnson johnson i mean anyways carry on what were you going to say about i don't know um, it's, yeah it's just some people it, pfizer there is really expensive because they don't have the same type of healthcare that we have here right where we have the manitoba health card for example for our province um and so therefore some some of i was talking to my cousin uh, a couple of weeks ago and she was saying that most of the people there didn't want to take the other vaccine, even though it was free because, you know, people were saying that, Oh, after I took it, uh, you know, I got sick or more, more cases started uh, emerging. And then they kind of came to a conclusion that, Oh, it must be the vaccine. And then I'd rather get the Pfizer, but of course it's, I can't afford it. So people, people in Philippines have to pay for the Pfizer vaccine. Yes, yeah, and their healthcare there is kind of it's really expensive. I could say that. Yeah. So, so well, yeah, I, we are in- incredibly fortunate how the the research world uh, has developed these vaccines as quickly as they can, um, but getting them into the arms of people who need them, you know, in a cost-effective way, has been very, very challenging. Um, and do you follow that argument about um, um, eliminating the patent protection as a way of lowering the costs of the vaccines, particularly in third world countries? Have you followed that at all? Because, I mean, obviously the, the companies who are developing the vaccine have patent protection and, to, and rightly so in the sense that, you know, they've done the discovery and um, but, you know, they're, they are making a tremendous amount of money. And, uh, you know, the, the other countries do not have the opportunity to develop the vaccines because of it's under patent protection for, for Pfizer. Um, not that the countries would have the capability, even if they, the patent was removed, to have the raw materials and the technical know-how to develop the vaccines. But there's two schools of thought. If we eliminated the patent protection, uh, 
some people feel that the third world countries would be able in a much more accelerated fashion to be able to generate and provide vaccine to its people. And there's other people who feel that, you know, if we eliminated the patent protection, we're going to eliminate, you know, the desire of, of companies, you know, to develop to develop new products because they, they don't have the patent protection and therefore their profit margin, you know, might go down. It's a it's a difficult world we live in. Difficult world. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I didn't realize, well, I know that there's not, the, the amount of vaccine that's going to third world countries is not what it should be. Um, but I didn't realize that what went there actually had to be paid for by the, by the consumer. But I guess it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Even in just general hospitals, like, you know, it's, it's kind of like a private hospital where you're not yeah. covered for anything and you have to pay for anything you use. So yeah, that's kind of how it works there from what I hear from my family members that tell me stories from there. Um, so yeah, I think on paper that, that sounds great though, the, the removing the pen. Well, there's this, there's a couple of schools of thought on everything, right? Yeah. So this thought, thought and that thought, and the truth is probably somewhere in between, right? Mm-hmm. But um, I guess it's our job to, you know, try to, I don't know. Well, we well, got to figure it out somehow. <laughs> our, our job here is to try to encourage people to be vaccinated. <laughs> yes. yes. Please be get vaccinated, vaccinated, guys. Yes. Yeah. And it doesn't even hurt. So, <laughs> no. Maybe a little bit. Just, just a little bit, but like it'll be gone tomorrow. So. Yes. <laughs> so that being said, uh, we would like to take you now to uh, a little game that we just started this season. Sorry, season two, because it's our second series. Yeah. So, And we kind of have the, I guess it's tradition now where it's just last minute. So it's it's our rapid fire question segment where so it's to, is this getting to the end now that I have close to, to the end. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So so it's um it's just quick, you know, first thing that comes up to your mind, just kind of the simpler questions. So whenever you're ready, Dr. Greenberg. Oh God, should I take should I be nervous? No, no, oh, no, 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 no. It's just it's very simple. Should, should uh, you? Quick, I'm not sure. <laughs> quick, quick. I don't, I, don't get too, I don't get too nervous, except before having to talk at podcasts. <laughs> Which You're is doing well. Is. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So here we go. I will start the rapid fire question now. So first question for you, um, Dr. Greenberg, is if you could trade lives with anyone for a day, you know, celebrity, uh, anyone you admire, uh, who would it be and why? Oh boy. So you're supposed to answer the first thing that comes into your mind. The very first thing that came into my mind was Alan Alda from MASH. <laughs> oh. I, I, I love that show. I still, and, and in fact, early days in the COVID, you know, when I was watching too much TV, I would always watch the MASH reruns. But that's what came into my mind. You know, um, he was an excellent surgeon. He was um, opinionated, but he had his heart in the right place. So I know it seems funny to, to pick him. And I even follow him. Do you follow his podcast? And do you follow him? Oh, I didn't know. He, his, I, his I don't personally follow after him. His, yeah, uh, let, me, let, me, let me back up a bit. 
Do you know Alan Alda is? I know I'm, I'm familiar with MASH, though. I've seen a yeah. couple episodes, but uh, I, I'm really showing aging myself. That's true. <laughs> well, <laughs> you better get me to the next question if you don't know who Alan Alda is, but um, you'd like him. All right, I'll look that up for sure. Do you know that the right name after. of the podcast? Well, I think if you just Google or search okay. on Twitter, Alan Alda, it'll come up. For sure, for sure. All right, so our next question. If a movie was made of your life, what genre would it be and who would play you? Oh, my God. Okay. It would be a documentary, I think. Okay. And... People have, in my, when I was younger, people said that I looked like Liza Minnelli, but you probably have never heard of Liza Minnelli, right? Well, when I'm editing this, I will put up a picture and a and comparison of- The name <laughs> sounds familiar, but- Have you ever heard of Judy Garland? Yes. She, okay. yeah. Her daughter was Liza Minnelli. Oh, okay. People said She's an actress and people said that I looked like her. But the the um, the one person who uh, whose life I really admire and emulate was um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So I would like a documentary, and maybe someone who has played Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her documentary that's been made on her could play me. Awesome! I'll definitely look that up. <laughs> and you so know who Ruth Bader like... Ginsburg was, right? No, no. <laughs> I'll definitely look it up and research. You have that. to. You have to read about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and you have to watch her documentaries. She was a Supreme Court judge. Oh yeah, yeah. In this yeah and she just recently um, passed away. Yeah. And oh, okay. um, well, we won't we won't get into U.S. politics, but she has incredible following, an incredible powerful woman. I actually i I just. Forgot what her last name was, but yeah, I she known uh, as RB, RBG Ruth yeah, Bader. Yeah, and my initials are CRG. So some when I some people have said that I'm a little bit like RBG and CRG, and I take mm -hmm. that as a supreme compliment. I think I, I, re <laughs> I, re I remember. I remember now. I've seen her picture, and I just I just got it now. That's yeah. She was incredible. Um, and yeah. the documentaries and movies made about her life are called RBG. Well worth mm -hmm. watching. I'll for sure watch that docuseries or documentary film. Yeah. She faced oh. tremendous adversity in her life. And we, we talked a lot tonight about adversity. And mm -hmm. she met all the challenges that she was faced with. You know, in the end, she could not survive to see um donald trump out of the white house but she would have liked to to yeah, yeah that would have been a great day for her <laughs> it would have been <laughs> yeah and i'm sure she was watching from the red rock <laughs> the red rock whatever <laughs> <Yeah>. that is <laughs> so next question what are the what are three words that describe your profession caring Equitable, challenging. Would you like to get, get more in detail for <laughs> why you picked those words? Um, well, 
first and foremost, I'm also a pediatrician. And um, in addition to being a geneticist, and um, <clears throat> one of the, the, the areas that was so important when I was doing my pediatric training and early in my career um, was developing the concept of family-centered care and being caring and em empathetic for your patients. So um, that obviously is very much of my motto. And at the same time, you know, I spent, I have spent many years as a practicing physician, as practicing subspecialist, um, but I also have had the good fortune of having some leadership positions. And one of the areas in leadership that I learned a great deal and tried to understand is that, is the issue of equity and how our system is not equitable and how can I improve the system to ensure that it is more equitable, that everybody, regardless of uh, race, color, sexual orientation, um, has the same opportunity as everybody else. And that's to me what we have to strive for in achieving an equitable world, a level playing field for everybody. And um, challenging, is because in medicine, if you have a career as a doctor, as a research, you have to continue to challenge yourself to stay current, to study hard and to work hard because the people to whom we report, our patients, you know, deserve the best. And so you have to continue to challenge yourself to stay up to date and be the best that you can be. So, I mean, these are the three words in your rapid fire thing that came to me. Awesome. Thank you for sharing those three words. Um, all right. So our next question, if you had access to a time machine, where and when would you go? Like which era? Well, that's a real hard one. Um, like I wouldn't go back to prehistoric times. I wouldn't go back to, you know, biblical times. I wouldn't go back to the Middle Ages for sure. I'd probably go back to the turn of the 20th century, like in the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. um, particularly interested in, you know, the awakening and the acquisition of rights for women, just the right to vote, you know. That'd be awesome. Um, so I think I would like to be able to live through that era and to see how involved I would get and to see if I would take that up as a cause. I don't know what, I mean, I take so much for granted now. We all do. But to live at a time in an era in North America, in Canada, in Manitoba, when we didn't have any of the things we take for granted now, I think I would like to live through that era. Interesting. Yeah, that would be really, really cool to, to be in that era. It must, it must have been very challenging yeah. to be a suffragette and live in that era. Yeah, very challenging. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you once again for uh, sharing your answer for that question. Uh, so the next one is, um, what have you done uh, in your entire life, I guess, or to make it easier in your profession that you are most, most proud of? Cool. Thank you. 
I mean, in the broad category, it's patient care. It's, I am most proud of being able to put patients first virtually all the time and, and, and live up to the tenets of, of my profession. I mean, I have specific examples when it, you know, it's been particularly satisfying, but uh, over, as a general rule, it has to be um, patient care. I'm, I'm particularly proud of the, you know, being able to live up to what I felt with the ideals of putting patients and families first. Um, you know, over, I think you mentioned in the introduction that, you know, I've, I've been so privileged to get awards, you know, <clears throat> which have been overwhelming and very humbling to me. But the most important thing about these awards and every one I've gotten, when I've had to go to the awards ceremony, not had to go, when I go to the awards ceremony, my patients would come with their families, unsolicited. When I was inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame, this was before, two years ago, before COVID, um, I had several patients who actually at their own expense bought tickets to go to the ceremony to see me inducted. The same thing happened here at the Order of Manitoba. I remember that, you know, once when I got the RH Foundation Award, sitting in the front seat was one of the very first couples that I met when I started my practice here in 19, I think it was 1980, 80, but this couple was their baby, whom I diagnosed was in 1982, and their baby didn't make it, okay? That baby would make it today if that baby were born today. And they were in the front row seat when they had heard that I was giving a public lecture. They came because they, of course, they never forgot their daughter, but they were just so happy that our work over the years had led for a specific effective treatment for this disorder. So like every award that I've gotten they're particularly meaningful for me because I associate them with the patients who've come to share, you know, in that celebration. And that is incredibly meaningful and touching to me. Mm, wow. Well, absolutely. Said. And, um, you know, I really want to just say right now that I appreciate, you know, professionals such as yourself in the, in the medical field, you know, my, my dad, you know, uh, he's a, a dialysis nurse. Well, he's a, an LPN. Um, and the similar stories, like not quite as, you know, grand as the awards and uh, ceremonies, but uh, he works up north um, in, in a small town called Ashern. And we, yeah, you know, it's not that far up north in the interlake. Two hours. Yeah, yeah, interlake. Yeah. So, you know, we get sometimes he would come home with like loads of fish and like meat. And then we just, we just wonder where, where all these, you know, fish come from. <laughs> oh, we, my patient was fishing yesterday and he, they just wanted to give me some fish. So it's really that's great. Awesome. That's, I think that's one of the rewards of, you know, of uh, working in that, in the, in this, and that profession, because, you know, you, you can really tell that you're, you're helping people in that, you know, people appreciate that. And I think, you know, we need more professionals such as yourself that, 
well, help really yeah. help people out and find passion in that. Yeah. Well, as I said from the, at the beginning of our of our interview, you know, the reason I enjoy my work so much is I can only really enjoy my work if I know that I'm helping support the health of others and the work of others. So, you know, that's that to me what medicine's all about. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. We are on our last rapid fire segment, oh, last rapid fire question. So the question is, how do you define happiness? Hmm. Um, happiness to me would be defined that when I leave this world, I'll be very happy if I am remembered as a good and caring person, then I'll be happy. That's the most important to me. I want to be remembered as a good person, as a good mother, as a good grandmother, uh, but mostly as a good person overall. That to me would make me very happy to be remembered as a good person. It's a good definition. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. And uh, yeah, once again, thank you for sharing that. I think that that should be the definition on the dictionary. You know, that's we should put that <laughs> on Webster's or something. Um, so that concludes our uh, rapid fire question segment. Thank you for uh, you know participating. I mean, you don't have a choice because you're an interviewee. So <laughs> but, it was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so um, this is basically our conclusion of the interview um but one last question uh mm -hmm. we we like to ask this after every episode of um our our series um because most of our audience is our target audience is you know youth in high school or early university who may be aspiring as well to become you know uh, a physician or uh professional in, in STEM, right? So my question to you now, Dr. Greenberg, and this is our last episode of this series. Um, so this is a lot of pressure for you. Just kidding. But, <laughs> but um, what advice can you uh, give our uh, youth that may be listening right now? Uh, and we have spoken for over an hour now. Um, what advice can you give them? Uh in their pursuit of their career in STEM or just even uh, any career, mm -hmm. uh, whether they're, you know, no matter their, what stage they are in, in their yeah. academic career right now, what can you say to our youths? Well, I kind of alluded to this before. Um, it, I think if you have a dream and something that you want to do, by and large, you should be able to achieve that. But you're going to need to work hard. There's no easy way out. You have to work hard. And a profession like mine in medicine, it's lifelong learning and lifelong work. Incredibly satisfying, but you have to work hard. At the same time, you have to take some chances. And if you see that fork in the road, take it. You never know where it's going to lead you. And don't look back. When you make a decision, 
Don't second guess yourself. Don't look back. Follow the dreams to the best of your ability, but perhaps have a backup plan. Great advice. Really, really good advice. And I think that that is a really good way to end our entire series on the Med podcast. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Cheryl Rogman Greenberg, for joining us once again. And for all of your responses, your, your advice, just everything for today. Thank you so much. I, I just want to yeah. for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. And it's really inspiring to hear your stories. And I learned so much. Um, and like advice I can follow uh, in my life as well. So thank you for uh, being a part of it. Usually, I usually end often my talks to students that, that people can contact me at any time for anything. Uh, they, you have my email address. <laughs> You can certainly, you can share it, you know. Um, I am the same person at work and at home, but if people feel that they want to reach out to me, I, I'd be more than happy to speak with them. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Cheryl Rockman-Greenberg. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Um, we are on our second uh, podcast series. Can't believe Season we're... Two finished season two already um thank you so much for listening and if you haven't already uh remember to follow us at lts underscore u of m we're on instagram twitter and facebook um when you follow us you can be updated on our upcoming events um we actually have a high school a summer camp coming up this summer so check that out we've got a registration form on there um, and feel free to follow and subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and more. And uh, this is also going to be on YouTube. So well, if you're watching this, you're already on YouTube, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you broke the fourth wall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Thank you so much. 